0: Turn, if you would, to the 26th chapter of the book of Matthew. There's only 28 chapters. We're all going, we are going to make it this year. Well, we finished off our play this week, which was exciting to be over. <laughs> the problem was, is I was supposed to do three plays a week. This week I did five. Last week I did six. The week before that, I did six. It's hard to do that when you work full-time. You need to quit playing around and get on That's true. I need to quit playing around. Last week, we returned to the narrative about the life and death of Jesus. We finished off all the discussion, all the uh, teaching that had been going on, And we started once again at the start of chapter 26 with the narrative that is leading to, well, you know where. We talked about uh, Judas last week. We talked about him going and asking for money. We skipped ahead a little bit to talk about Jesus saying that this has to happen. Someone is going to betray me, but woe to the person that does it. We had a discussion about the fact that God does use people's wicked deeds to accomplish His purpose, but that does not in any form or fashion excuse the wicked deed. The fact that God used Jesus, uh, Judas's betrayal of Jesus does not excuse the fact that Judas betrayed Jesus. So, we'll pick it up in verse 17. Although, as I said, we did skip ahead a little bit, so some of what I'm going to read we talked about last week. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? So, they are in Jerusalem. Everybody comes to Jerusalem for the Passover. It's packed, and his disciples say, Okay, it's time to have the Passover supper. This was one of the commands that was given to the nation of Israel when they left. Egypt, every year you're going to remember the fact that the death angel passed over the homes that had the blood on the doorpost. So the Passover was very important. So here we have 13 guys, Jesus and 12 disciples, who don't have any place to have dinner. And they have to have it to be good Jewish males so one of the disciples comes and says hey where are we going to have dinner he said go into the city to a certain man and say to him the teacher says my time is at hand i will keep the passover at your house with my disciples and the disciples did as jesus has directed them and they prepared the passover jesus just says go in ask this certain guy tell him the master wants to have dinner at your house It's a miraculous thing. The fact that he had a room available, that they went to the right person, that God had prepared the person's heart to respond correctly. If you remember when Jesus first came into Jerusalem as part of the Passion Week, they went and got a donkey that was just tied up somewhere. And just untie it and take it. Well, what if somebody says, you're stealing our donkey? Just say, the master needs it. And guess what? The guy said, sure, take it. God had prepared their heart for the needs that Jesus had. So they go to this house to have the Passover supper. When when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. You do know, right, they didn't sit at chairs. You know, the famous Lord's Supper picture, they're all sitting in chairs on one side of the table. So every time you sit on one side of the table, we say we're doing the Lord's Supper. They were lying. They were reclining at a a very low table, eating their dinner. He reclined at the table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, this is kind of a spoiler for a good meal, right? We have twelve guys that have been walking around with Jesus for probably three years. Maybe a few months here or there, depending on a particular disciple. For three years, they had been living together and jesus turns and says one of you is going to betray me well what would you do you'd start looking at each other it's not me it must be you it's not me it's got to be you and they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another is it i lord he answered he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now there's some discussion about whether the other disciples were privy to this conversation, whether the other disciples figured it out, because the, we'll find out, if not in this account, in the other Gospels, that at some point Judas gets up and leaves. Okay, He's had enough of this, so the others might begin to figure out, I don't know. But Judas knows. Judas knows that Jesus knows. And Jesus knows, yeah, you get the picture, right? Why did Judas do it? We had a brief discussion about that last week. Obviously, he did it for the money. Okay? He got paid. Jesus has been predicting that he is going to be crucified, and then, yeah, he's going to be raised from the dead, but nobody knows what that's like, right? My opinion is all they really knew is he was going to be crucified. And Judas was figuring out this show is coming to an end. I need to recoup what I can because this show that I've been living for this last three years is about to end. And I'd better get the money now while I can. There is some speculation that Judas, being a believer of Jesus, was trying to force Jesus' hand. It's like, you're living in obscurity. I'm going to make you do something. I'm going to force you. When that Roman soldier comes to grab you, I'm going to force you to zap him. And they try to make it sound like Judas is on the right side. He's just very confused. I'm not sure I would give Judas that much credit. But even if it is true, it would be an example of us trying to accomplish God's will through our own power. Jesus knows where he's going. Jesus knows that he is following the plan of the Father to accomplish the salvation of all of humanity. He knows. He knows what's going on. And I'm going to repeat every week for the next several lessons the fact that Jesus is in control of this entire situation. At any point in this process, Jesus could have stopped it. Remember, this is the guy who told the Sea of Galilee in a huge storm to stop, and it stopped. What could he have spoken That would have stopped this if he wanted to he could have done it he could have stopped this but he chose not to if you were reading this as a um, totally uh objective reporter you would go gosh he's just being dragged along He's going to go from here, and the disciples are going to betray him. He's going to go here, and this is going to happen, and this is going to go here. He was doing what needed to be done. Now, we'll have some more discussions later if he truly understood what was going to happen. But what he truly understood was he was doing the will of the Father. So, woe to you, woe to you who are going to betray me. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for their forgiveness of sin. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom." Judas is probably gone by this time, okay? Matthew doesn't really tell us. Some of the other Gospels talk about the fact that Judas has left. So, what we have here is what we refer to today as the Lord's Supper. Paul is going to talk about it on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took the bread and he took the cup. Why was this significant? Just out of curiosity, if you will, turn back to Genesis, chapter 15. We're just going to look at one little side story in the life of Abraham. At this point in the story, he's still Abram, but we know him as Abraham. Chapter 15. And these things, the word of the Lord, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. You remember the story, right? God has promised Abram, Abraham, That you will be the father of many nations. Your descendants will be like the sands of the sea. There's going to be a boatload of people. And God comes to Abraham again and renews that vow. You're going to be great. And he, he goes, I'm an old guy at this point. How can this possibly happen? The person who is going to take all of my wealth is my head servant. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. In the book of Romans, that last sentence is very important. Because what did Abraham do to merit, to merit his relationship with God? He didn't do squat, except he accepted that what God said God would do, Abraham believed God would do. He believed God, and God said, that'll do. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out, From the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other but he did not cut the birds in half and when the birds of prey came abraham drove them away as the sun was setting down a deep sleep fell on abram and behold dreadful and great darkness fell upon him then the lord said to abram know for certain that your offspring shall be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and they will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years but i will bring judgment on the nation they serve and afterwards they shall Come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. That would be the pieces of the animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land... And from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, Canaanites, Catamonites, Hittites, Pesanites, Rephraim, Amorites, Canaanites, Gyrgyzites, and Jebusites. What is the sentence in this that we're looking at? I am making a covenant with you. Notice, there was a sacrifice A covenant required a sacrifice. I was making a covenant with you. I would bring something. You would bring something. We would sacrifice it and we would pledge that I will keep, you will keep your word. But notice what happens here. They have the sacrifice. It is split. It is divided. And Abram falls asleep. It's kind of weird. Why did he fall asleep? I suspect it had been a while. Okay? We read these verses very quickly, but it had been a while. Long day, he starts to fall asleep. And God walks between the pieces of the covenant, and God made a covenant with Abram. It wasn't you and me making a covenant together. I promise, you promise, we're going to do, I'm going to do. God promised to Abraham... I'm going to do something for you. And to ratify the covenant, a sacrifice was given. Throughout the Old Testament, over and over again, you will see this idea of a covenant made and a sacrifice given to support that covenant. Back to Genesis. Jesus said, this blood, This blood is my blood that will be the new covenant with you. Who's offering the sacrifice? Jesus, the Son of God. He is the sacrifice for the new covenant that he is giving to us. We as, well good Southern Protestants, oftentimes don't take the Lord's Supper very seriously. We look at our Catholic friends, and to them, the sacrifice of the Lord's Supper, or in their case, the Eucharist, is exceptionally important. In fact, it is the center of the church service, the center of the Mass, Whereas we believe that the Word of God is the center of the church service. But having done that, we oftentimes don't really take the time to consider what is being offered here to the disciples. The disciples are celebrating the Passover. They are at the Passover meal The nation of Israel has been in captivity. The nation of Israel has been in bondage. Did you just notice that God told Abraham that was going to happen? To me, that's kind of weird, okay? If God came to me and said, okay, I've got great things in plan for your descendants, but first they've got to be in captivity for 400 years, Go back 400 years. Where are we? A long time ago. A long time ago. For 400 years, the descendants of Abraham believed, to varying degrees, believed the covenant that God had made with Abraham. And then here they come, and they are going to leave Egypt, And there's blood of the sacrifice that tells the death angel to pass over that that house. And these good Jewish males would have heard this story since the day they were born. And now Jesus is saying, Forget the blood on the doorpost. Here's the blood. Here's the blood. And here's the body. I am the new covenant. This would have been radical thinking to them. I propose that they wouldn't have figured it out until after the fact. That's just my speculation. What is the Lord's Supper? To us, it is a remembrance. It is a remembering what God, through Christ, has done for us by the shedding of his blood. We'll have a little bit of a aside and a little theological distraction for a moment, if you will. We believe that the cup, the juice, uh, they would have been using wine, but we in the south, southern part of the United States, being inundated by Baptists, I'm a Baptist, by the way. I was raised and born a Baptist. Uh, Substitute grape juice, okay? It is still fruit of the vine. It's just we Baptists are that way. We believe that this is a picture, and a picture only. If you're a good Catholic, you believe that after the priest has blessed this, this becomes, in fact, the blood of Christ. Why? Because he says, take, this is my blood that was shed for you. So the priest will take the wine and will bless it, and it actually becomes, it is no longer a picture, it actually becomes the blood of Christ. And you go, how can that be? It still looks like grape juice or wine. It still smells like wine. How can it be the blood of Christ? To understand that, you have to understand a little bit of of Aristotle's philosophy, okay? This is a chair, okay? We all agree this is a chair? What color is that chair? Gray? Gray? Dirty gray? gray? (laughs) Should we just say dirty and stop there? But you know for a fact that there are blue chairs, right? And there's green chairs, and there's red chairs. In fact, there's all kinds of different chairs. So the color of the chair has nothing to do with the chairness of this chair. It's just a accident. Philosophically speaking, they use the word accident for something that could be different and still maintain the essence of this being a chair. So we have the essence, this is a chair, something makes this a chair, and we have the accidents, which is the color, maybe the shape, certain fabrics, etc., that make it. So, throughout all of life, there are things that are essences, and there are things that are just accidents. It is an accident, I think, that I'm bald. It is not part of my essence. Well, maybe it is. I don't know. That may be a bad example. When the priest says his blessing on the wine, the essence of the wine becomes the blood of Christ. The accidents, the smell... The taste, the look, remain the wine. But that's just the accident. It is not the essence of the sacrifice. That process to a Catholic is known as transubstantiation. It is changed to the body of Christ. Why is this important to them? They would claim well, it's following the scripture. Jesus said, This is my blood. So if Jesus says, this is my blood, it's got to be my blood. I don't understand it. I don't understand Aristotle's philosophy. But by golly, if he says it's the blood, it's got to be the blood. But we're also told to do this in remembrance, which tells us, no, it's a memory. It's a remembering. Now, to a Catholic, this is what gives the priest is power and influence because in order to be saved you have to partake of the blood of christ and you can't partake of the blood of christ unless the priest blesses it you cannot do it on your own you have to have the priest and if the priest doesn't like you that is you've been excommunicated you're not going to get the grace that receiving the sacrament brings you. So it gives the church, the organized church, considerable power over you. So that is the Catholic position, which is transubstantiation. Now, if you're a Lutheran friend of ours, you say, okay, it looks like grape juice. It smells like grape juice. It tastes like grape juice. But The body of Christ is with it. It doesn't change, but it is put with it. And this is grape juice and the blood of Christ. And this is known as consubstantiation, with you. Okay, And that is what our Lutheran brethren would believe today, if they understood what they believed. Now, if you're a Presbyterian, (laughs) you believe it's wine. Always was wine, always will be wine. But, being a sacrament, it bestows grace upon you by the mere participation in the event. Participating in the sacrament itself brings grace to you. Once again... We believe that it is a remembrance, an ordinance given to us to remember what Christ has done for you. It's just grape juice. That's all it is. But when we contemplate the work of Jesus Christ, the grape juice, the wine becomes important to us. I might also add, if you're a good Catholic, you have seven sacraments. We have two ordinances. What are they? The Lord's Supper and baptism. Both of which, we believe, remind us of something. They are a picture of something. We do not believe that baptism saves you. It is a picture to the congregation that you are aligning yourself with Christ and his work. Whereas a good Catholic will believe that baptism, the baptism usually of an infant, actually does in fact remove the taint of original sin in your life. So at that point, you can be saved because the sin has been removed. Now, on a good day, I can remember the other five, but I'm not even going to try that today. Please. The question is, what do I think about having the Lord's Supper if you are not worthy? Okay, all right. There's the first observation right there, okay? Her first observation was who is worthy, and the answer is no, not us. The scripture does say examine yourself to make sure you're right, whatever that means. Number one. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? What is it that makes us able to stand before a holy God? And that is the finished work of Jesus Christ in our lives. So I come to the Lord's Supper, and if I think, hey, I'm pretty good. I did well this week. I did what I was supposed to do. I didn't cause any too much trouble. I'm better than you. I mean, let's face it therefore I'm worthy, then you've got the wrong picture to begin with because you are believing that you did it. And if you did it, what do you need the blood for? You don't. But if you go and you say, you know, I'm a sinner saved by grace. If it wasn't for the blood of the new covenant, I'd be toast. Then you're ready. You're ready for it. Now, if you come and you say, see that guy sitting on that rope there? He's a jerk. (laughs) And I have malice, anger in my heart against a fellow brother. The Sermon on the Mount says, leave your sacrifice, go be right, and come back. So I do believe there are instances in your life where in the examination process... You go, I am holding bitterness against this person and I need to deal with that before I receive the Lord's Supper. Okay? The fact that you're a sinner, that's what qualifies you to receive the blood of Jesus Christ. The unrepentant sin in your heart that you are made aware of at that point, I believe you need to go deal with it and then come back. Okay? Okay? Now, I'm not going to sit here and start giving checklists, though, of, okay, do you pass this? Do you pass that? Because we'd all fail miserably. Go ahead. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, his point is that it's more than just, well, I feel bad, so I, it's, if you eat it, you're in deep trouble, okay, because you're taking it unworthily. To me, that is one of the dilemmas that we oftentimes have, where we tack on the Lord's Supper at the end of a service, we're looking at our clock, we're ready to go, we do it, we do it pretty quickly. Now I will give you a hint. You know, right, when we're going to do it at church? It's kind of on a schedule, right? The first Sunday of every month. You know, you, you'd be you do a good job if you prepared yourself before you got there, right? And what does that prepare mean? Lord, do I have sin in my heart that is unrepented? And if it's a matter of repenting and asking Jesus to forgive you, great. If it's a matter of calling up your neighbor, great. If it's a matter of talking to your spouse, oh gosh, great, do it. If not, if not, as was said, you're sitting there with that unleavened bread in your hand and you're saying, God, I know you died for my sins, but you know what? My sins aren't near as bad as that person over there and what they did to me. And I have a right to be bitter with them because they took my pew. (laughs) And God looks at you and says, you're nuts. And God looks at you and says, if you eat that cracker, you're telling me that that guy's sins are worse than yours and you don't know the half of it. That's the condemnation that comes. The period where you are supposed to be examining yourself, and you're looking at yourself and saying, I'm better than that person. Don't do it. Don't do it. I will. Yeah. Yeah. It should be a continuous thing but it's good to have it on your calendar just in case you forgot about it, (laughs) just an observation. I will tell you there have been times in my life where I've let the elements pass. I just, I was ticked off at somebody, I was mad, I don't know, I don't even remember what it was, okay? But there are times when I said, no, not right now. What is the solution? A solution with every sin. Repent, confess, turn to God, accept his forgiveness. And guess what? The blood and the body of Christ, that's the forgiveness. So, we did our brief history lesson. Anybody have any questions that I can't answer? <laughs> hmm? Well, we have people in here who are ex-Catholics, and we have people in here who are actually Catholics, but whatever. My best friend, by the way, is a very strong Catholic, so we've had lots of discussions about this. He also happens to be Jewish, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> no, actually, I knew his father. In fact, I was a good friend with his father, too. His father was smuggled out of Germany as a child in the early 30s, so it's an interesting story drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin what is the purpose of the blood to forgive sins without the shedding of blood we are told there is no remission forgiveness of sin why why is that i'm not sure i know the answer to that except that's the way god made the universe We go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned. Adam and Eve sinned. They knew they had sinned. They knew they were going to be in trouble with God. And they knew they were naked. So what did they do? They stitched together some fig leaves. And they clothed themselves. And God showed up and he said, the fig leaves aren't going to cover it. Ha, ha, ha. The fig leaves aren't going to do it. And he slaughtered an animal God slaughtered an animal, made a covering for them, the shedding of blood, the forgiveness of sin. They left the garden. They had two sons, Cain and Abel. One offered a sacrifice that involved blood. The author offered a sacrifice of grain. God accepted one. He didn't accept the other. The one who was not accepted killed the one it was. And throughout the history, as we saw in Abraham, as we see in the Entire book of Leviticus we see the necessity of a sacrifice without the shedding of blood, without sacrificing something of value the life of the sacrifice there is no forgiveness of sin and at this point I would love to just stop and jump over to the book of Hebrews for a couple of years and we talk about that but we're not going to do it I'm going to summarize it for you, okay? In the Old Testament, there was a sacrifice. And the next year, there was a sacrifice. And the next year, there was a sacrifice. And the next year, there was a sacrifice. And then Jesus came along. And Jesus is the perfect, final sacrifice. The cool thing is, not only is he the sacrifice, he is the priest Offering the sacrifice. And he offers his blood that is not needed to forgive his sins in order to forgive our sins, so that we can be saved. Why do I not believe that when the priest says his words over this, that it becomes the blood of Christ every week? A continual sacrifice, because I believe the sacrifice was made once and for all. We do not need the blood of Christ shed this week. We do not need the blood of Christ shed next week and the week after that. The book of Hebrews says it was done once and for all. And all we are called to do is to remember what Christ has done for us. We don't have to do it on a weekly basis. Which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Now, if you are really scary, you'd want to talk about the word many. But we're not going to do that. (laughs) Because it gets us into the idea of limited atonement if you're a good Calvinist. And if you're a good Calvinist... The doctrine of limited atonement is what separates the men from the boys in the Calvinist world. The limited limited atonement teaches us that the blood of Christ was shed for the elect and not for everybody. Well, I'll give you my three-second version of that. I'm not sure who it was shed for, but if you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it was shed for you. Don't sit there in your chair thinking, I wonder if I was one of the many. I wonder, hmm, don't. Go to Jesus, accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and the blood of Jesus will save you from all of your sins. For the forgiveness of sins, I tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's some discussion about whether after the resurrection he didn't participate in drinking of wine or whether after the resurrection was the beginning of the, well, the new kingdom. So drink on. We'll discuss that when we get around to the resurrection. So, and when they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. In my... uh, in the Baptist church I grew up with, we would do the Lord's Supper in the evening service, and we'd do it at the end of the service, and then we would sing a hymn, and we would leave. That would be the the service. I might add, just for historical purposes, When I was young, we would do it at night in the dark, and I was a small child, you know, standing up in the seat, and we had the tray, and the tray had the cups, and the cups were not like today, which are plastic. They were actually glass cups. And the tray was going past, and I, being young and curious, wanted to know what was in the tray, so I grabbed it and turned the whole tray over onto my lap. (laughs) What can I say? I'm sure there's some allegory there of being baptized in the blood I don't know No. then Jesus said to them you will all fall away because of me this night for it is written I will strike the shepherd and the sheep and the flock will be scattered but after I'm raised up I will go before you to Galilee Peter answered him though they all fall away because of you I will never fall away Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Jesus is preparing them. What is he preparing them for? He's not preparing them for the denial. Okay, He's just telling them that's going to happen. What he's preparing them for is after the resurrection. You see, without this sentence, without this discussion with them, you know what would happen, right? They're going to have the arrest. They're going to have the trials. They're going to have the flogging. They're going to have the crucifixion. And all the disciples are going to leave. Okay? Maybe we can say good things about John. He sticked around with the mother. and all. Okay, we'll talk about that later. They're going to deny Jesus, and they're going to run away. Now, after you've run away, what are you going to do? Well, I heard this rumor he's come back, but he wouldn't want to see me. He wouldn't want to see me after I ran away. Three years, I lived with him. I ate with him. We slept in the same house or we slept outside. We participated in all these great things. And when the going got tough, I quit. I'm not going back. He won't have me. But what does he tell them? You're going to deny me when I'm done, I'm going to be in Galilee. Come find me. What is he telling them? I don't care what you do in the next three days. I don't. Come back to me when it's all over. This is the promise of forgiveness. This is the promise that when the going is tough and you fall away, I'm still going to be there. Come to me. I've said in here before, and it's pure speculation on my part, I am convinced that if Judas had shown up on the Sea of Galilee and said, sorry, Jesus would have said, don't worry about it. I've got that one covered too. Now, he didn't. Why? Probably because he didn't hear the sentence you're going to fall away. That's a horrible thing to tell somebody who's been living with you for 3 years and who has done what you wanted to do and Peter just couldn't take it. No, Lord. Peter has this nasty habit of contradicting Jesus. Just let me give you a general a general principle of life. Don't contradict God. You're going to lose. Peter says, no, I'm going to stay with you to the end. I'm going to fight them with you. We're going to. And Jesus says, no. Before the rooster crows three times, you're going to pretend you never knew me. Yes. Yes. Yeah, uh, her question is why do some churches do it every Sunday and we do it once a month and others do it once a quarter? Yes, it's just tradition of the church, okay? Um, Some of it has to do with how much importance you put up on it. You know, it's like the, the discussion of examining yourself. You should be doing that more regularly than once a month. And if it takes having grape juice and crackers once a week, we'll do that. So it is just church tradition. Okay, there's nothing in the scripture that says, thou shalt. Now, there's some discussion about whenever you get together, break bread, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, and that's what people look at that and they say, ah, we'll do that. We also know the church got into trouble, the early church. You know, as at this case, they were eating the Passover meal, there was a meal associated with it. So the church would have a meal and they would end with the Lord's Supper. Except the rich people were bringing rich food and the poor people were sitting in the corner starving. And Paul says just leave all that at home, okay? If you're going to insult the poor believers, then just, so there were dilemmas of what they had turned it into. And so I believe because of that, it was simplified to we're going to do the Lord's Supper so we can concentrate on that and not who had the biggest meal, okay? So there is a lot of church tradition tied up into that. Our tradition Of our church, I believe coming out of the Baptist, et cetera, background was to do it once a month. I've seen churches that do it once a quarter, seems a little too infrequent. I've seen churches that do it every week. There are lots of Presbyterian churches that will do it every week. The Catholic churches do it every mass because they believe, well, that is why we're here, is to participate in the body of Christ. So we will pick up here next week as we continue our way through the narrative. What is the point of all of this? Point number one, the blood of Christ was shed for you. Next time in March, when we do the Lord's Supper, don't think about the fact that that's a pretty tiny cracker they're giving me. I'd like a bigger piece. (laughs) Don't think about the fact this is grape juice and I would have liked a good red wine. Don't think about that. Think about the shock that it would have been to the disciples who had been celebrating the Passover all of these years to have Jesus say, I am the new covenant. That's what we need to remember. We need to remember that Jesus' blood is being shed for the forgiveness of our sin. You didn't work your way into heaven. If you think you worked your way into heaven, you're wrong. And you have problems that need to be dealt with. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the shedding of the blood of Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would remember. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.